Hey guys, this is John. Sorry I haven't posted a podcast in a while. We've had some issues with audio recordings at Large Group lately. Um, in fact, we actually lost our Exodus 20 sermon uh, on the Ten Commandments. So I'm not going to have that one posted, but uh, we do have an Exodus 17 sermon here for you. We did not get the scripture recorded, so I'm going to read that right now, and then uh, you'll hear the preaching on this sermon after I read from Exodus 17. This is verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord's by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Welcome, guys. My name is John Trapp. So glad to have you all here. Uh, welcome to RUF. This is your first time. We're particularly glad that you're here. Thanks for um, giving us some of your time this week in the middle of the week. I know this is a busy time of the season for you all with classes kind of kicking into gear. Um, so just glad to have you here. If this is uh, your first time or you're kind of new to RUF, um, just to tell you a little bit about who we are. Uh, RUF is a place for sinners. And uh, at RUF, we believe that all of us are in need of God's grace, that in fact, you can't be so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace, and you can't be so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. So what that means is that we're all kind of in the same boat tonight. And uh, the good news that we believe that the Bible tells us is that God is a God who moves towards sinners. And so that's why every week at RUF, we do something that's very, it's actually just kind of normal. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of fireworks here. Uh, if you're looking for a ministry with like high production value, like this is probably not the place for you. Um, but what we do is we come together, we sing and worship God, and we gather around his word. And we believe that the word of God actually contains life and truth. And maybe you don't believe that. And if you don't, like, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for coming and checking this out. Um, but that's what we're going, that's what I'm going to suggest to you tonight is that God's word is actually, it has a word that is true for you and it, it actually gives you life. And so I want you to consider that tonight as we look at this story in Exodus. We've been going through Exodus uh, all semester long and Last week, if you weren't here, we see Israel 
walk through the Red Sea, this very famous kind of salvation story where they're rescued from their, uh, their masters who've been enslaving them for hundreds of years in Egypt. And God destroys the Egyptian army. Uh, he drowns them in the Red Sea and he delivers Israel. And you can only imagine what it must have been like for them now to, to, to think like, okay, now what? And that's what we're going to see what happens now. After they've gone through the Red Sea, we're going, to, we're going to look at kind of the answer of now what. So let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father, thank you so much for this time to be together. And I pray now that the words of my mouth and that the meditation of all of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So to appreciate like, what's going on in this story... You have to imagine what it would be like to, to be in the wilderness. And this isn't just, this isn't like West Texas wilderness where it's you know, hilly and kind of beautiful and trees and stuff. They're in a desert wilderness. And the other thing that you have to imagine is that we know from the uh, later accounts in the Bible that the number of people that they had gathered with them was at least 600,000 men and then also women and then also children. So over probably over a million people at least gathered in this group and they're in a place where there's like no resources. They're in the desert. And that is, that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Like there's old people there and they don't have walkers or wheelchairs there's young moms there who don't have strollers, which is hard for me to imagine what that would be like to have your kids in the wilderness and like keeping up with them in the middle of the sea of a million people. There's no, like there's no Bucky's in the wilderness. You know, there's no convenience stores. Um, I remember being so blown away by Bucky's when I moved to Texas. It was like the most strange thing ever to me. I remember, <laughs> sorry, side note. I was the first like youth group trip I did. I was a youth pastor. I had a bunch of middle schoolers in like a big church van and they were like, can we go to Bucky's? Can we go to Bucky's? Can we go to Bucky's? I was like, what is that? I don't even know what that is. Okay, whatever. Let's go to Bucky's. And like the signs were like forever, you know, along the highway. I was like, man, this place must be amazing. We pull in and all the middle schoolers like ran into Bucky's and I couldn't find them. They were just gone. So huge, like it literally took us like an hour to get out of Bucky's because they were just middle schoolers like crawling around shelves and stuff, and some of them are probably still wandering there, I guess. But uh, like it was just it was crazy. But the thing is, there the wilderness that that Israel finds themselves in, there are no convenience stores because this is wilderness is just it's an inconvenient place. That's what the wilderness is. And Israel comes to a place, um, and they're thirsty. And they start asking this question, is the Lord among us or not? They're, they're following around this glory cloud, okay? The way that they know where to go in the wilderness, there's this cloud. It's a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. And it's, it's literally God's presence on earth with his people at this time. And so they're following, they're following God. And they're following this cloud around. And now the cloud leads them. God leads them to this place where they're like, what are we doing here? 
Like, he led us through the, the Red Sea. That was amazing. That was really cool. But, like, now what? Because the wilderness, the wilderness in the Old Testament and in this story, it's a place of absence. It's a place where things are missing, the things that you need, like food or like water. And the reality is, is that the world that we live in, the Christian life, is really a life in the wilderness. Where we come and deal with and struggle with absences in our life. And while for you, you might not struggle with the absence of water or of food, we all have different kinds of absences in our lives, whether it's the absence of someone that you love or the absence of health for someone that you love or for yourself or the absence of justice or the absence of friends or the absence of maybe you don't even feel much right now. You just feel numb. Or maybe it's the absence of meaning in life. All right, we're going unplugged again. This is like, um, sorry guys, my mic's been super goofy lately. Um, maybe you just feel like the absence of meaning. Um, and when you start feeling that absence, it begs this question. Is the Lord among us or not? That's the question that they ask. And that's the question that you probably ask yourself when you're... When you're sensing and feeling the struggle of this life, and the struggles maybe of your friends or of yourself. And this, I do think, is the question of our time. It's one of them, at least. Is the Lord among us or not? I talk to students here on campus all the time, and they're essentially asking this question. Is God here or not? Does he, if he, and if he is, does he care that I'm thirsty right now? Because these people are thirsty and we feel, we thirst over the absences that we experience in our life. And what I want you to see in this passage is that three things happen, or three three things I want to look at. First, Israel grumbles. Second, there's a surprise. The second point's a surprise. You're going to have to wait and see what it is. And third, so what? So Israel grumbles, there's a surprise, and then so what? So Israel's grumbling. They're grumbling because... They've been doing the right thing. They're supposed to be following this cloud. And that's what they're doing. And now life is hard. And that's actually a pretty good metaphor for what the Christian life can feel like. Sometimes you may feel like, man, I've I've, I've been trying to do the right stuff. Um, I've been, I've kind of been like, growing in my faith and I've been learning more about how much God loves me and then like things I thought things were supposed to get better and maybe they don't that's a very normal thing that's actually just how life is but also is how the Christian life can be because we're living in the wilderness and what we see here is that the wilderness for Israel it's not a result of their disobedience And it's also not a phase. It's a new zip code. They're going to be in this place for 40 years. Because in the wilderness, God is going to do something with them. He's going to shape his people. And they're going to find out who they really are and who God really is. That's what happens when our life feels like we're in the wilderness. We find out who we are and we find out who God is. Some of y'all have heard me talk about when I was in college at Vanderbilt, Two of my best friends and I convinced a professor of ours 
to let us go and do a wilderness, we call it a wilderness experiment, um, right after, actually right after our UF summer conference. We left our UF summer conference, Chrissy Trapp, Chrissy Greenwald at the time we were dating, she was so scared that I was going to die in the wilderness. She literally was crying as I told her goodbye at Laguna Beach in Florida. <laughs> she was like, please don't die. Because our plan was we were going to go to uh, Jasper, Alabama, which is in the middle of nowhere on this mountain. And we were going to live without food, without water, um, without tents, without extra clothes. And we were going to do this for 12 days and kill our own food and gather our own stuff. And like we had, uh, we brought a pot to boil water in. We got to bring a pot. We got to each bring um, like a blade of our choice. So I brought a machete. <laughs> and um, we each got to bring, uh, and, we, and we got to bring like a box of matches because nobody knew how to make fire. So we, uh, we go into the wilderness and the whole point of it, it's, uh, it's for this um, program that we're in at Vanderbilt that uh, analyzes like small group dynamics under high stress situations. So uh, actually our experiment is in, a, is in a textbook that our professor wrote. And so... <laughs> We like the plan is we're supposed to go there and just find our food and kill it and eat it. We were not good at this. We thought that we were going to crush it. Um, At the end of the fourth day, all that we had consumed as a group, mind you, was a baby copperhead, a rat snake that was filled with uh, tapeworms. Um, We yeah, (laughs) we ate uh, some ants. Some tree bark, lots of tree bark, actually, which is not fun. Um, and I ate a beetle, and my friend ate a butterfly. And, a, and, a, and one guy, one of us had killed a crawfish. Now, here's the thing. When he killed the crawfish, he, had, he woke up early in the morning. He went and got it. And our agreement was anything we kill, we share. Like, we share everything. Well, David goes and finds the crawfish, and kill, he comes back. And he throws it in the pot of water that's boiling, and I smell it, and it smells like there's like a crawfish boil and happening in our campsite. And I haven't eaten anything for like two days, and I wake up and I'm so excited, and I see him just pop it in his mouth and eat it. I was like, "Dude, like what happened to like one one for all and all for one?" He's like, "I'll go get you one next." He doesn't find any more. Like they're all gone. So here's what happens with the rest of um, the trip. We, we're supposed to like keep journals about how the wilderness experiment is going. And uh, my friend Crawford and I, our journal entries immediately became, if you go back and read them, they're just against David the whole time. <laughs> because he's like eating, he's eating food that he was supposed to share with us. And I was like, David is so annoying. He thinks he's so cool because he found a crawfish. Like I'm going to go, I've, I know where a secret honeysuckle patch is. And I'm going to go, I literally did. I would go to my little honeysuckle patch and eat honeysuckle. <laughs> So, like, here's what happens, though, while we're in the wilderness. Um, by the way, we only lasted four days, and that's a whole other story with, the, with eight police cars showing up thinking that we were running a meth lab. But I'll tell you all that another time. So, we, we, we had to leave the wilderness. But what happened when we were in the wilderness is we found out who we really were. Like... As soon as things began to get hard and I experienced true, actual hunger for the first time in my life, I was weak and anxious. But not just that, I was like very easily agitated, very quick to grumble about somebody else who, you know, happens upon something good for them. It doesn't share it with me. 
We began plotting. Literally, we began like, look, our professor isn't out here. We could just go to McDonald's and come back. And no one will ever know. Like, literally, like, we're having these conversations every night before we go to sleep. Which, by the way, all three of us have gone into ministry at some point of our life. So, like, watch out, you know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we, while we're in the wilderness, we find out who we really are. And that's what's happening to Israel. They get into the wilderness and they, we quickly find out they're grumblers. Verse 3, the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses. And look what they're grumbling. It's so extreme. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Footnote, he brought you out of Egypt because they were killing your kids and you were in slavery. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our, and our livestock with thirst? It's total disregard for all the things that have been done for them. And now that things are getting hard, they're grumbling. And man, as I've like thought about this, I mean, think about what do I do in the wilderness? I'm a grumbler. And all of us are. I mean, think about the stuff that we grumble about. It could be something as simple as opening up your closet and just thinking, I have nothing to wear. I hate my clothes. (laughs) I do that. It happens to me, seriously. (laughs) Or it could be um, grumbling about the lack of self-awareness in somebody else. Like, oh, can you believe that guy in class who always has to answer the question? It could be grum- we grumble about our food. Maybe you've been living at Harden and you're served dinner at five o'clock and you grumble about this. Or maybe you're tired of kin solving. I know some of you will never tire of kin solving. I'm sorry if I said that um, and that hurt your feelings. Uh, maybe you're tired of Callaway's food and it felt it was like awesome for the first two weeks and now you can't stand it. We grumble. We grumble about, if you want to hear me grumble, be in the trap house and I know that's where I live. Um, and when I open up the pantry and my Oreos aren't there after I've put the kids to bed and I'm just ready to like chill out with my box of Oreos and they're not there, grumbling ensues. We grumble about things. And here's the thing. Our grumbling comes from, it, it says something about our heart. And Paul, Paul actually says in Philippians 2.14, He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And you read that, you kind of just want to be like, Paul, I I get what you're saying. That sounds nice. But have you ever taken MIS? (laughs) Right? Like, Paul, do you know what it's like to have a professor who doesn't like to teach and is just like really into research? Paul, do you, have you ever had calc before or a big pile of laundry? Like, we are so prone to grumble. And it's not just about things like that, but it can, be, it, it can be about our parents or our friends or our professors or our boss or our roommates. We grumble. And here is why grumbling is such a big deal. At its heart, I'm not overstating this. It's going to sound like I am. At its heart, grumbling is a denial of God. Because here's what we do when we grumble. 
When we grumble, we are saying, I know best. I know how things should be. I know the way that, this, that, that my life should be going right now. And if God is sovereign and he's in control, I don't like it. I need to be in control. Grumbling at its heart is a denial of God because we think we know how things could be better if we were in control. And C.S. Lewis describes this as what we have done, especially in the modern age, is we have taken God off the seat of judgment where he belongs and we've put him on the dock or in the, in the um, that's the, I guess the British way of saying like in the defendant's chair. And in his essay called God on the Dock, listen to what he says. The modern man thinks himself quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, then the modern man is ready to listen to that reason. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench, the judge's seat, and God is in the dock. See, that's how Israel is. Israel is grumbling, and their grumbling has actually become contentious. They're contending with God. They're quarreling with him. And I want you to see that this language that's being used here in Exodus 17, it's, tr- it's, it's ancient trial language. This is like judicial language that's being used. Um, the, uh, in verse 2, um, the word for quarrel, it's, it's not the same word that is also, um, sorry, let me give, sorry, in verse, in verse three, the word grumble, that can also be, um, a translated in Hebrew as contending, like to lodge a formal legal complaint. And it's, it comes from the, um, the Hebrew word reeve, resh, yod, bet, we, we would say R-I-B. And so when, when they call it at the end Meribah, the place, this place where, they, where this happened, Meribah, that R-I-B in the middle of the word right there, Reeve, that's referring to this Hebrew word that is like a legal word, meaning like to file a, or lodge a complaint against, to, to contend with someone. And so what they're doing is they're coming to Moses with this complaint. And another, another thing that we can see that's kind of proving that this is like, a trial that's about to happen. Moses cries out in verse four, they're going to stone me, which is the punishment for somebody who's been found guilty of treason. See, they, like Moses is like, they think that I have brought them into this place to die. They think that I'm treasonous. They're going to try me and kill me. And then another thing that would happen in an ancient trial happens. Verse five, God tells Moses to take the elders before the people. Bring all the elders of Israel in front of the people. This is what would happen at a, in a court scene, in an ancient court. And the elders were meant to judge the people. And in verse five, another court scene thing happens. Moses takes up his rod. This is the same rod that he used to smite the Nile River. It's the rod of his judgment or his authority. It would be like the judge picking up his gavel. And Moses picks up his rod. And then a very surprising thing happens. Here's my second point. This is the surprise. And uh, I have to tip my hat to a theologian named Edmund Clowney, who makes this observation that I think is fascinating. 
Because Israel is ready to, they're ready to go to trial because they're mad about what's happening and they're grumbling. And God shows up to the trial. Look at verse 6. Listen to what God says. After all the elders have been assembled, after Moses has taken up his staff, God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. This is what's interesting. Because in the Bible, men are usually the ones who are depicted standing before God. Whenever someone, like, when someone is standing in a court scene in the Bible, it's almost, it's everywhere else, it's God who's seated and the man who stands before him. And this is how ancient court proceedings would happen. But here in verse 6, it's not God who's seated and man standing. God says, I will stand. I will stand before the elders. I will stand on the rock. And what's happening here, the way that God is answering Israel's grumbling is he's going to do something very surprising. It reminds me of, um, there's a play written in 1957 called The Sign of Jonah. It's written by a German man. And I mean, think about living in Germany in 1957, like what has just gone down. And he's processing all of the atrocities that his country had committed against the Jews and many others during World War II. And he writes this play, and the play is a court scene. It's a court scene where all of these different people who are part of um, the genocides of World War II are brought in, and they're trying to find out who is the person who's responsible for this. Like, who's guilty? And the first kind of people who are brought in are the people who are at the, who are the executioners at the death camps. But the, the court kind of finds like, well, you know what? They, the judge was like, someone, they were getting their orders from someone. And so then generals are brought in. And then eventually Adolf Hitler is brought in. And as, as you kind of move up the hierarchy, you, you begin to realize that there's someone kind of in authority this whole, over each person below. And the Bible says that the person who's, a, who's over authority of everyone, of all rulers, of all nations, is God. And so at the end of the play, God is brought in. God is brought in and he's put in the dock, like C.S. Lewis would say. And God is found guilty. And listen to, uh, it's so interesting. Listen to what the punishment is that the judge decides for God to have. The judge says, let him become a man. Let him become a wanderer on the earth, homeless, hungry. Let him live as a Jew, despised, and then die a horrific death. Now that sounds like someone. Sounds like someone from the New Testament. It sounds like the very thing that God does through the work of Jesus. And we get a foretaste of that here in this passage. We get a foretaste of it because, and here's the interesting thing, in the play we see that, that, that God ultimately, while he is accused, he is not guilty. And the same thing is true here. 
He is being accused by Israel. But he has not done anything wrong. He has only saved them and shown them grace. But despite their complaining and whining, despite their contention with him, what God does is he goes to the place where the guilty would stand and the rod of Moses' authority, the rod of wrath, comes down on the rock where God stands. There's just amazing symbolism happening here. And what happens when, God, when, when Moses strikes the rock, when his authority and wrath comes down on the rock, the rock splits open. And the thing that Israel was longing for, water, flows out. And this story is meant to point us to Jesus. And I, I hope you, you don't feel like I'm getting like super creative and like reading into this too much. Because like Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, he says this about that rock in the desert. He says, For they, Israel, drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That rock pointed us to someone. The rock upon which God stood, where all of the wrath and punishment that was due to the grumblers came down instead on the rock. And because of that, the ones who were thirsty and grumbling and struggling and stubborn, they were given what they wanted. They were given water to drink. They were given grace, finally. So what? Last point. What I want you to see is that God intends to fill the absences of this world. The things that are absent in your life. The life of the wilderness that we live in. That God intends to fill it. He does it at the cost of his own life. And we see this, we see that our world is a world that is thirsty. And God intends to quench our thirst. Jesus meets a woman at the well in John 4. She's, it's a, she's a woman who's had five failed marriages. She's on a sixth relationship. She's not even married with this guy that she's living with. And Jesus meets her and he asks her for a drink of water. And he starts having a conversation with her about water. And he knows all the this, this stuff that's going on in her life. But instead of like immediately going to that, he starts talking about water. About how she starts to... And then, and then when she says, well, how could I get this water? Then he starts talking about her relationships. And he says this, whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become to the one who drinks it a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, the absences of our life that we look to all this other stuff to fill and they still leave us thirsty, what Jesus intends to do, what he claims to do, is that he can actually fill it. The greatest absence that all of us experience, the thing that we long for the most, to to be known and loved. We were made for it. I mean, we were made for it. I'm reminded every time we have a kid, which has been a lot recently, um, every time we have a kid, 
all five of our kids have done the same thing. They, no one has to teach them this. They'll be like a month old and kind of like looking around with their like googly eyes, you know, because their, their eyes are still like focusing on stuff. And then eventually their eyes will focus. You get real close up to their face and their eyes will focus on you and they just see this. They just smile. Who taught them to smile at a face? No one. Because what all of us are searching for is for a face that's searching for us. We're all, it's what makes sense of the world. It's why babies who don't get that, who don't get that kind of attachment, there's scientific data that it, it affects their lives. And in really, really sad cases, like in some orphanages in Eastern Europe back in like the 80s and 90s, when babies were just left in cribs and never had a face beholding them, they died. You're made. You're made to have the absence and whole of like love that's in you filled. And what the gospel is saying is that God comes to people who fail, who grumble, who contend with him, who have a problem with him, he comes to them and he smiles on them. He shows them their grace. He makes a way so that they can be known and loved. And the way that he does it is he takes their place. He substitutes for them. That's what he does in Exodus. That's what he does through Jesus for you so that you can be known and loved. So what do we do with that? If you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that real unconditional grace and love is offered to you tonight. Not because of what you've done, but because God, this is, this is who God is. He is willing to take our place, your place. If you are a Christian, I want you to think about <laughs> in verse 4, God says, I want you to go before the people and pass before them, take with you some of the, um, the elders. And uh, in verse four, Moses is like, they're going to stone me. Like, Moses probably doesn't want to go pass before the people if they all want to stone him. Like, it's, he's going to go to obey God. He's going to have to risk his life. And if you're here and you're a Christian tonight, what, what following God in the wilderness looks like is it looks like being willing to lay down your life for the good of others. It looks like losing your life for others' sake and for the gospel's sake, for God's sake. And then what happens is you find it. Because here's the thing. Um, in verse 7, I'm sorry, in John chapter 7, Jesus says that anyone who would come after me out of them will flow rivers of living water, streams of water, just like the imagery here in Exodus 17. Jesus says, anyone who follows after me, who knows me, out of them will flow rivers of living water. Here's what that means. And I can't help but think about the geography that's around him as he's saying this. If you've ever been over to Israel, you know that like the kind of the two main bodies of water is one is the Jordan River. And it is 
this kind of, it's not big. Like we sing these like, you know, on Jordan Stormy Banks I stand and we kind of imagine this like epic river. It's not, it's kind of this like little dinky river. And, but it's filled with life. It's beautiful. And it's always flowing, constantly flowing. At the end of the Jordan River is what's called the Dead Sea. And all of these tributaries flow into the Dead Sea. But it's the Dead Sea. Do you know why? Because nothing flows out of it. So everything goes there and stops. And because nothing's flowing out of it, it's just dead and nothing can be alive in it. And what Jesus is saying in John 7, like, if you will come after me and follow me, out of you will flow rivers of water. That means that following him actually means receiving his grace and then giving it away. Receiving his love and giving it away. Receiving his life and then giving it away. And sometimes that can feel really hard. And you think about like, man, okay, that's a per- there's a person over there who's maybe in my fraternity or sorority or in a class who like needs love. And I don't know if I've got enough for them. Like, it's going to feel like giving a lot up to be nice to them or to invite them to something or to do something with them. And what Jesus is telling us because he loves us is that if all you're going to do is receive grace, you will be like the Dead Sea with tributaries coming in and nothing going out. But as we give ourselves away, what we find is God gives us more life. We find our life in that. And so like really simple application for this, like maybe that just means being a friend to someone who needs a friend. I was talking about this with someone this week. Like all of us kind of sit around sometimes and it helps if you're in a Greek organization because you kind of have like social activities already planned for you. So no one has to do a lot of inviting. Um, or if you're in like a club that's like really social and you just kind of like naturally do stuff for you that's planned. But sometimes there's just those days where you're sitting by your phone and you're hoping someone invites you to something, but you don't want to be the inviter. Like we all want to be the invitee, but not the inviter. And to be the inviter sometimes feels like giving yourself away and putting yourself at risk for the other person. And maybe that's the application here. To like put yourself at risk for someone else. Even like... Introverts, you can be the inviters. It's okay. And it's okay to try it and be rejected. You'll live. Go for it. Um, the reason that we can do this is that the way the Bible ends, the reason that we can have hope in this, the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, it says that one day we will come to a place and where there will be a river of water of life. It says it's bright as crystal, flowing just like the rock was Christ, flowing from the rock. The river of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And there will be no more thirst there. There will be a place. What God has set out before us is a place where there's no more absences. There's no more things missing It's gone. And instead, we will know Christ in his fullness. And so let me read. I'll just close with one of the last verses of the Bible. From Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. 
Let the one who desires the water of life come without price. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we thank you that you are the God who substitutes for us, who took our place by sending your son, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, who was willing to suffer and take the punishment that we deserve so that we might have a relationship in which all of the things that we long for are filled, and that is a gift. We pray that you'd help us to believe that and to receive that and to give that same kind of life away for the good of others. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all, let's stand and sing.